If you have your Bible with you, um, open and find Romans chapter 8. This is our second week in this great chapter. It's not only one of the great chapters in Romans, but of the New Testament, and if you want my opinion, the whole Bible. Um, I said last week we would spend three weeks in it, and that's more than just about any other chapter in, in Romans that we're going to spend time on, and we're in the second of those three weeks. I also said last week that in many ways, chapter 8, it doesn't just do this. As if it, it's not as if it, it, it teaches us anything new or introduces any new thing, but in, the, in many ways, it is, it is summarizing much of what he's already said in, in the letter. It sort of just sums it up and sums it up in such a way that it's drawing it also to a crescendo um, and some sort of conclusion in a, in a beautiful way. We have already looked at the first almost third of the chapter, verses 1 through 11. Let me just remind you of what we said last week, and I'll explain why in just a minute. Paul, in verses 1 through 11, he opened the chapter in the first four verses reminding us of the foundation of the believer. That's what we called it last week, the foundation. And it was, remember, it was a twofold, uh, a two-layered foundation that, for the life of a, of a Christian. The first would be in the atonement that Christ provided. That's why he begins the chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law that it had over us told us what we must do and obey how we must obey to be accepted before God he has fulfilled for us through his perfect life through his sacrificial death through his resurrection from the dead that's the first foundation what Jesus Christ has freely of his grace done for us. But he also said in those early verses that there's a second layer to our foundation as a believer. It's not just what Jesus has done for us, it's what the Holy Spirit does presently in us. Remember he said in verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life, that's the Holy Spirit, has set you free from the law of sin and death. And so that, look in verse 4, um, that, uh, that, that now the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit so this this second foundation is the indwelling of the holy spirit so that he he is now at work to sanctify us and 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 make us progressively more like christ right and we saw in those verses that follow that like verses five through eight we saw last week, that Paul began to explain how the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is, is what we call the evidence of a believer, the evidence uh, in us that we belong to Christ, the evidence that we are born again. That's something that's going to feature um, and be a prominent feature in other places in this chapter. We're going to see that today. Um, where we set our minds and, and, and how we live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. It's evidence that we are born again and have the, the, the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the, that, and that's the second thing we saw. And then the last thing we saw was verses 9 through 11 in last week's passage where we were reminded of the assurance that we have as a believer. The assurance. Uh, what, what, all we pointed out in verses 9 to 11 is just looking carefully at how Paul just 
interweaves Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, reminding us that, that our salvation is a work of our triune God. Like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each person of our triune God playing a role in the accomplishment and the application of our salvation. And, and not only that, but I, we said that this salvation is a complete work of our triune God because it spans, he says, from eternity past to eternity future. It's a divine certainty. Okay? And it's, why do I go through all that? It's on the heels of that word about our assurance that Paul continues in much the same vein of argument in our passage today. We're going to see in our passage today, which is verses 12 to 17, how Paul makes three important claims about every believer in Christ. Three important claims. And we're going to structure what we say and how we think about this passage around those three claims. Before I identify what those are, let's read our passage first, and then we'll dive into it. So, If you have found Romans 8, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 12. We'll just read through verse 17. Um, It seems like a short passage, but there's more here than meets the eye. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. Um, Lord, thank you so much for uh, this word. And we recognize that this word is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And we ask, Lord, as as we think about these words, would you give us eyes to see the truth clearly in them? And would you give us minds to understand it very clearly? Would you give us hearts to embrace what we see here? Be encouraged by it. Uh, Love it. Embrace it. Unreservedly, wholeheartedly. Would you give us wills thereby to, 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 to live out and put into practice whatever it is that we are admonished to do through the truths that we see? Give me the help that I need to teach. And Holy Spirit, would you give us all ears to hear? I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a couple of things here to begin. Um, Notice again how verse 12 begins with the connecting words, so then. Um, So then, brothers. And that shows you, that simply shows you that what he's about to say here is not unconnected, disconnected from what he just said in the verses right before, which is why I reminded you of what we saw last week, right? So, in other words, and I. Not, not just this morning when we're publicly studying through it, but when, when you come across a passage like this, and you're reading through Romans and your Bible reading plan, and when you come across ver- words like, so then, pay attention to them. And as you read through this, just don't forget, read it, and, don't, and have in the background of your mind what he's already said, uh, and, 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 and realize that whatever he says here is going to be rooted 
in the assurance that he explained in the verses right before it. Everything, in other words, that he's going to describe in our passage today is, is from a place of victory, not striving for a place of victory. The victory's already there, and we, we share in it. And the other thing to notice at the outset is what I just mentioned before we read, namely that Paul makes in these verses three important claims about every believer which is going to provide the structure for how we approach this passage. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to, say, I'm going to show you what the three are, uh, and I'll, I'll tell you what the point is that we're going to derive from it. Notice first, the first claim is in verse 12 when he says, we are debtors. So then, brothers, we are debtors. And so here's the first point derived from that. Christians are debtors to the Spirit of God. Christians are debtors to the Spirit of God. I'm going to try to make clear what I think Paul is saying there. Uh, it's very interesting, and I, I, it's very encouraging to me, but despite what it sounds like initially. That point's going to cover, by the way, verses 12 through the first part of verse 14. We are debtors, Christians are debtors to the Spirit of God. Based on that claim in verse 12, we are debtors. All right, so now notice the second claim he says it a few different times. For example, he says in verse 14, he says that all, basically all believers are sons of God. In verse 16, he says, we are children of God. He'll say it again in verse 17. Children, we're children. We are children of God. So here's the second point. Christians are sealed by the spirit of adoption. That's a capital S, spirit, Holy Spirit. Christians are sealed by the spirit of adoption. That's, that's just using, by the way, the phrase that Paul himself uses in verse 15. You have received the spirit of adoption. And that, that point is going to cover the last part of verse 14 through verse 16. And then, um, after we see Christians are sealed with the spirit of adoption, or by the spirit of adoption, um, he makes the, claim, the final claim in verse 17 where he says of Christians, we are heirs of God, and we are fellow heirs with Christ, right? So here's the final point. Christians are fellow heirs with Christ of glory. Christians are fellow heirs with Christ of glory. That's going to be the, 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 what he, he says just there in verse 17. Christians are fellow heirs with Christ of glory. Those are three what should be deeply encouraging truths that are true of every believer, Paul is saying. So let's dive in and think about them a little more carefully, and then we'll, we'll go back to the beginning and think about the first claim. Christians are debtors to the Spirit of God. Again, looking at verse 12, he begins with the word, so then, in other words, having just said what he said in verses 9 through 11, how complete a salvation we have from God in Christ here is what results from that assurance for us. Notice he says, so then, brothers, or brothers and sisters, it could be translated. It's from a place of victory. Uh, and, and, and so what is now true? What's the first thing that's true for us who have been assured of this salvation in Christ? The first thing is, so then, brothers, we are debtors. What? Well, let's see what he means by that. He says... We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. 
That's simply a restatement of what he said earlier in the chapter. So again, look back in verses 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, Christ has dealt with the penalty of sin and the consequences of our sinful flesh. He's done it. And notice that because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now in us, he said in verse 9, you are no longer in the flesh. You're not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. In other words, as Christians, as someone who is born again by the Holy Spirit, we no longer belong to the flesh, is what he's saying, which means Christ has paid its penalty over us, and the Spirit has broken its enslaving power in us. That's what he means by saying you are in the Spirit. You're not in the flesh. And that's why he can say in verse 12, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We don't, know, we don't owe anything to our flesh. Another way of saying that is when we, in, in practical terms, when we feel the temptations of our sinful flesh, we can often feel quite strong, really objectively, we are no longer mastered by it. We are no longer mastered by the sinful desires of our flesh. Even though my flesh still exercises influence over me and influences me strongly, I'm technically no longer mastered by it. Like, because I'm not in the flesh, I'm in the Spirit. The Spirit now enables me at any given moment, at every given moment, um, uh, to, to choose obedience over disobedience. No matter how strong the temptation of my flesh is, my flesh is no longer my master. I can choose obedience, right? But Paul, looking at verse 12 again, notice how Paul words verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors. That's, that's the fact. That's what we are. We are debtors. But then he says, not according to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, Okay, we established that. But the way he words it, and if I, if, if the way I read it, hopefully I communicate that. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. It leaves you sort of going, okay, what kind of debtor am I then? I, I, I'm not a debtor. To, I am a debtor. And I'm, I'm not, not a debtor to the flesh, so what kind of debtor am I? We are debtors, but not to the flesh, so What? Paul leads you to assume in the way that he continues and what he's going to defend in the verses that follow is that, yes, we are debtors. We're not debtors to the flesh, but we are debtors to the Spirit. We are debtors to the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? What kind of debt do we owe to the Holy Spirit? Um, and this is where it kind of gets encouraging, I think. Look at what he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, here is where Paul indicates not only how we have a debt to the Holy Spirit, but what kind of debt we have to the Holy Spirit. Okay, not only that we have a debt, but what kind of debt is it to the Holy Spirit? So let's just pick this apart. Let's just 
phrase by phrase, pick verse 13 apart. He begins reaffirming that those who are in the flesh and therefore live according to the flesh are going to die. That's not really anything new, by the way. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? That's, that's old news, still scary news, but we know it. But he quickly adds, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now let's pick that apart. Think about that carefully. Let's try to simplify the language just a little bit so we can think about it a little better. Phrase by phrase. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. What is another way of more simply saying put to death? In one word, one English word. Kill. Okay? So you could replace that. If by the Spirit you kill the deeds of the body. What is another word for deeds of the body that Paul might have used otherwise? Sin. If by the Spirit you kill sin. That's what he's saying. If by the Spirit you kill sin. That's what we're talking about, killing sin. And notice Paul says, you do it. If by the Spirit you kill sin. You put to death the deeds of the body. You do it. That's our obligation. That's our debt. Right? And that's not anything new here, by the way. Remember what he said at the beginning of chapter 6. You, don't, you can turn there if, if it's easy or just, or just think. In chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, he said, What shall we say then? He's just talked about justification by faith in chapters 3, 4, and 5. And he gets to chapter 6. And now that we're justified in Christ, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says, by no means. And he asks this question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Christ lived and died and rose that we might be free from sin's penalty. And now the Holy Spirit indwells us that we might be free from sin's power. And so now, having been given all of that, it is now our obligation. We are debtors to walk in that freedom. We're debtors. The way, and Paul's not the only one that talks like this. The Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's why Paul says in verse 12, we are debtors. Salvation to us is free. I said to us. wasn't free for Jesus. But to us... Salvation is free by grace through faith. But we are called, as he tells the Philippians, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And that involves, according to verse 13, killing sin. Killing it. Putting to death the deeds of the body. We owe to God obedient lives. We're debtors. But what kind of debt is it? We haven't yet addressed the most important words in verse 13. And what I'm talking about in verse 13 is the words, by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you kill sin. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Yes, it is our 
Christian obligation to be about the business not only of repenting of our sin, but working to kill it in our lives. But how do we kill it? By the Spirit. By the Spirit. What does that mean, though? It's important that we think about it in the context. He says, look carefully, he says, If by the Spirit you kill sin, you will live. Now look back up at verse 5. In the second half of verse 5, it's it's where he said, Those who live, there's a a common word, Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now that seems to be an important verse for understanding verse 13. And do you remember what we said last week about the things of the Spirit? What did we say the things of the Spirit was? In short, the only other time Paul ever uses that phrase, the things of the Spirit, is 1 Corinthians 2.14. And in that context, without going there, in that context, in 1 Corinthians 2, the things of the Spirit are the words of Scripture. Okay? The this is the thing, these words are the things of the Spirit. These are the Spirit-inspired Scriptures. These are the things of the Spirit. And so when Romans 8, 5 says that those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit, he's saying believers have a new mindset because we set our minds on the Word of God. We set our minds on the Word of God, the things of the Spirit. We do that corporately, publicly, We do that privately in our own time. The way that the Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican tradition uh, put it, it, in in that there's a prayer that says, Blessed Lord, who caused the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Believers, they say, set their minds on the Scriptures to hear them, read them, mark them, learn them, inwardly digest them. And when we do that, it's not just ink on a page that we're doing that with. It is the living and active Word of God because these words are the things of the Spirit. And setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, according to Romans 8, 5, is the mark of those who live according to the Spirit. That is what Paul has in mind in verse 13 when he says that we kill sin by the Spirit. As we hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the Scriptures, i.e. the things of the Spirit, and we then ask the Holy Spirit to help us to walk in obedience to it, the Holy Spirit will always answer that prayer and empower us and enable us to do just that. But isn't that an interesting debt? That's an interesting debt because the debt isn't just, hey, you, kill your sin. It's actually the Holy Spirit commanding us, kill kill your sin and do it with my help. Kill your sin and ask me for my help to do it. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying. Which is why in the next verse, verse 14, Paul describes it as being led by the Spirit. He leads us in that. 
He empowers us. He enables us. In other words, put bluntly, he, not, he, only, he only demands what He then provides for us to give. We work out, to, to go back to Philippians again, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's only for it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And we can only kill sin by the Spirit as we steep ourselves in His Word. Yeah, that's the debt. we got to steep ourselves in it. But as we do, we ask for His help, He grants it. The Spirit, in other words, is not just watching us to see if we're going to walk in obedience. He's not just watching us to see if we're going to kill the sin in our lives. He's empowering and enabling us to do that. Verse 14 says He leads us in that. John Gill was a, um, a, a, a pastor in England, a theologian. He was a pastor in a church in London that later Charles Spurgeon would pastor. And he said, he paints this beautiful picture of the, 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 the leading of the Spirit, the, if you are led by the Spirit. Here's what he says about that. He says, the Spirit of God leads believers from sin and from a dependence on their own righteousness in paths they formerly knew not and in which they should go, in the paths of faith and truth, of righteousness and holiness, and in a right, uh, and, and in a right, though sometimes a rough way. He leads them to a person, blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, and to the fullness of grace in Him, unto the presence of God, to the house and ordinances of God, into the truths of the gospel, from one degree of grace to another, and at last to glory." which he does gradually, by little and little, he leads them to see the iniquity of their hearts and their natures and to lay hold on Christ and salvation by him into the doctrines of grace and the love and favor of God in proportionally to the strength he gives. We are debtors to the Spirit of God to give him the obedience that he enables us as we ask and read his word and ask for his help. It reminds me of what the psalmist says in Psalm 116, verse 12 and 13. Psalm 116. It's talking about the vows that he owes to God. And in verse 12, the psalmist says, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Another way of saying is, What do I owe to God for all of his benefits to me? What is his answer in verse 13? I will lift up the cup of my salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, there is nothing that we can do or give in our own goodness, in our own strength. All we can do is lift up the cup and ask for his help again. That's all we can do. It's like Augustine prayed, Lord, command what you will, but grant what you command. That's the kind of debtors we are. That's a great kind of debt. It's a debt that we owe, but he gives us what we owe. That's amazing. But as we move further ahead in our passage, we come to the second claim that Paul makes about believers. Not only are we debtors in the most gracious debt mind could imagine, but in, at the end of verse 14 through verse 16, he also says Christians are sealed by the spirit of adoption. Paul moves from legal language in verses 12 to 14 of debts that we owe, legal language, 
into family language, beginning in verse 14 through verse 16. We've already talked about what it looks like to be led by the Spirit, but what does, what does Paul say about all those who are led by the Spirit? He says at the end of verse 14, they're sons of God. How is that? He says in the middle of verse 15, you have now received the spirit of adoption as sons. He's going to reiterate that in verse 16, that we are children of God. You know how I love the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Most of the chapters of that book are like five or six pages long. I commend that book to you without reservation. Take half a year and read Knowing God. Read it slowly. Most of the chapters in that book are like five or six pages. He's got a, he's got a chapter on God's adoption of us in Christ. It's 40 pages. It stands out like a sore thumb. Um, and he explains why this is so important. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Let me just give you one more from him. Adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. That's the doctrine that Paul is reminding of us of beginning at the end of verse 14. He alternates between calling believers sons of God, children of God. Both are right, both are true. Sons is a little more specific in terms of inheritance that, that he's going to talk about in verse 17. But children of God does convey, convey all the privileges of adoption in Christ by the Spirit as well. And I wonder, I wonder, why does Paul want to bring up this particular point about adoption at this particular point in the passage. Might it be that we're hardly ever satisfied with our consistency and progress in killing our sin by the Spirit? Might it be that I understand that I should kill my sin by the Spirit? I, might, might it be that I understand all that He's given me, but I'm still weak in my flesh that I don't do that very well could it be that I'm I feel I'm still so poor at killing my sin that it sometimes can cause worry and anxiety and doubt in us whether we're saved at all I believe that's exactly why he brings up adoption here it's very similar to what we saw last week when he talked about the evidence of a believer and then he followed that up immediately with the assurance of a believer and here, to the Christian especially, who struggles with confidence because they don't always feel very victorious in their fight against their besetting sins, Paul reminds that Christian especially, you have been adopted by God as a son. You are a child of God. And he says what comes with that 
at, as the first part of verse 15. What comes with that is there is no reason to fear or worry. No reason to fear. He says, you did not receive the spirit, little s, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Slavery to what? Well, remember, verse 14 says, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. Paul said in Galatians 5.18, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, which means you no longer have to measure up according to the law. Jesus has already done that for you perfectly. So much so that Paul says at the end of verse 15, you have received the Spirit, big S, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Why does he add that little bit? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. What does that add to it? I think he's thinking back to Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he is arrested, tried, and goes to the cross. The night before all of that. And he's praying. Remember, he sweat drops of blood in that prayer. But he prayed, part of his prayer was Mark 14, 36, in which he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus prayed, Abba, Father. And Paul says, we have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father, When Paul says the Holy Spirit allows us to cry out to God as Abba, Father, he's comparing our sonship to Jesus. Now, you got to parse that one carefully, right? In his deity, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Ain't nobody entering into that, right? But when that eternal Son of God took on human flesh uh, and came in our likeness, it was was from that humanity as Jesus of Nazareth, flesh and blood man, who cried, Abba, Father. He sweat drops of blood. God doesn't have blood. A man does, right? Right? And that man, coming as our substitute, cried, Abba, Father. He came in our likeness as our substitute. And the man, Jesus Christ, drank the cup of wrath that we deserve so that when we repent of our sins and trust in Him, we are united to Him so that the sonship of Jesus of Nazareth is ours too by union with Him. Incidentally, that's why in verse 17, he's going to say we are fellow heirs with Christ. We're joined to him. His inheritance is mine too. In other words, our acceptance as God, as sons of God is as sure as Jesus is accepted before the Father. It is the same. He is the, and for that reason, we have no reason to doubt, no reason to worry. He is the perfectly well-pleasing son. And in our adoption as sons through repentance and faith, we are just as loved. We are just as unshakably accepted. 
And when Paul says in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit assures us of this, our Bibles say the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It says the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. That can be confusing, as if the Spirit is bearing witness and my spirit too is bearing some kind of witness. That's not the way this should be understood. It's better understood as the Spirit bears witness to our spirit. To our spirit. The Spirit testifies and bears witness to my spirit, to your spirit. We are children of God. And notice, Paul says, the Spirit himself does this. Because we're still weak and sinful. We don't always feel it as strongly as we could, but it's a surety. I got, I got one more quote I want to read to you. It's just good. It's by Herman Bavink, also a great theologian. He summarizes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us and this testimony of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to what he says. To this consideration must be added the testimony of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about in Romans 8, 16. The Holy Spirit is the great, almighty witness of Christ who testifies of Christ in our hearts, brings us to the point of faith in his name, and causes us to know the things which are given us of God in Christ. But, the, but that Spirit of Christ at the same time causes us to know ourselves, not only in our guilt and impurity, but also in our fellowship with Christ and our portion in Him. After He has first convicted us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and as the Spirit of faith, He has worked the faith in us, He follows up His work by assuring us of the faith. He becomes a spirit of adoption as children, a spirit such as is suitable to children and lives in children, and one who makes us known that we are children. And he does that in various ways. He does it by testifying to our spirit that we are children of God, by powerfully driving us to the joyous confession, Abba, Father, by giving us peace with God and shedding the love of God abroad in our hearts, by quickening us to a new life, progressively leading us in our Christian life, filling our souls with a joy before, before unknown, and he does all this to say nothing of other things, to seal us unto the day of redemption. To seal us. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is also sealing us unto the day of redemption. Where did you get that word to seal us? In Ephesians chapter 1, in, in Ephesians 1, 5, Paul says, In love he predestined us to adoption. And in Ephesians 1, 13, that reality was sealed in the promised Holy Spirit. That is, that is surer than our weak feelings that wax and wane with every hour. But how gracious of God, not only to justify us and adopt us, but to give us His Holy Spirit to make us know it. That should banish all fear. There's one more claim that I very quickly need to say a quick word about. And that's the claim in verse 17, that Christians are fellow heirs with Christ in glory, of glory. In verse 17, Paul builds on the idea of adoption. Because he says, and if children, so he's building on that. And he adds the idea of inheritance. Paul says that if we are children of God, if we are sons of God, which the Spirit testifies that we are, then he says we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. In other words, if we persevere and follow Christ, um, that's, that's when it's going to happen, and he promises his presence to assure us of that. But he says, heirs of God... 
and fellow heirs with Christ. For someone who doesn't feel they deserve to be an heir of God, that's why he reminds you, you're a fellow heir with Christ. He earned your place there. But what does he mean to be an heir of God? Heirs of God. There are two ways to take that. On the one hand, heir of God simply means you are God's heir. Right? You are an heir. And Paul said in Romans 4, 13, that promise to Abraham and his offspring would be, they would be heir of the world. 2 Timothy 2, 12 says, if we endure with Christ, we will also reign with Christ. Psalm 84, 11 says, no good thing does he withhold for those who walk uprightly and in heaven. We will surely do that. So no good thing will be withheld from us in heaven. That's an heir of God. That's, that's, that's the privilege of being God's heir. But on the other hand, Heir of God could also mean God himself is the inheritance. We inherit God. Theologians of old often talked about the beatific vision. In other words, the blessed vision. When we see with our eyes, our physical eyes, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And in him we behold the glory of God. That the glory of God will be a beauty that we here have no comparison. And, and, and you think about it, in this in this world, and it, it could be different from every person, but there, God has built into this world things that to the beholder, it is beauty that we never tire of beholding. I could look at a sunset all day long or something. How much more will that be true in heaven? I just think, and we've got to close it down now. This is a deeply encouraging passage. To think of the movement of it. It begins with a debt of godly obedience that we owe to God, a debt which the Spirit Himself provides us to give. It, it moves to, to the present assurance we have as children of God to banish all fear in this life, that we might, the fear that we might not be cared for all our life long. No, you're a child of God, never to be abandoned. And finishes with the assurance that the inheritance is already waiting on us in which no good thing will be withheld, and the greatest of those things will be the vision of God himself. And don't miss this last point. All of these things that we have just considered, these are the things of the Spirit. These are the things of the Spirit. These are the things that you dwell on daily. And as the Spirit, through dwelling on these things, sheds the love of God abroad in your heart, he's equipping you to walk in obedience and not in sin and to walk in victory. Let's pray.